0: Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f***. What the f- gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it.
1: Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. You may recall a while back I did a podcast with Andy Shell of 59 North. Now Andy's trying to make a business out of taking people sailing with him. So if you're interested in getting some offshore experience, you might listen to this ad and see if it's something you're interested in. And by the way, I do recommend that you also subscribe to Andy's podcast, 59 North.
0: Greetings, gang. This is Andy Shell from the 59 Degrees North Sailing Podcast. If you dig Franz's show here, you'll definitely dig my podcast, so subscribe for free over on iTunes. And if you're interested in getting out in the high seas yourself, join my wife Mia and I on our classic Swan 48 Eastbjorn. Uh, that's Swedish for polar bear, on one of our upcoming ocean passages. Eastbjorn's in 1972 Sparkman Stevens Swan 48. Perfectly configured for taking crews in style and comfort on long-distance offshore sailing trips. We sell four spaces per trip, with myself as skipper and either my wife Mia as mate or another professional sailing friend of mine who I hired to join us. Most passages are between five and seven days, with the occasional two- to three-week ocean crossing thrown in for the real adventurous among you. Got a bunch of trips coming up. In November, we're sailing south in the Caribbean 1500 from Annapolis to Tortola. Then in 2016, we're doing some trips in the Caribbean and a transatlantic next summer. Check out the full schedule on 59-north.com slash offshore. 59 degrees north, we're sharing the infinite wisdom of the high seas with those wise enough to seek it out. So come and join us. I'm going
1: to make the introduction to this episode fairly brief. Don't really have much new to say. Did get an email from one of my listeners from Ken up in Canada. Said, I've been listening to your podcast for about a year now. Thanks for all your hard work and passion. I am a sailor and a dreamer. I've sailed for over 30 years on small boats on landlocked lakes throughout Western Canada. My wife and I have a plan to sell it all in nine years or less and buy a blue water boat and go explore the world. You're taking some lessons in the Gulf Islands this month, and we have bought your 101 and 103 lessons. We have enjoyed them very much. And then he asked to be able to review the 104 lessons, which I will do. I'll send him a link to that. Thanks, Ken. I appreciate your comments. I do like getting letters from listeners. I'm not big on responding on Facebook or Twitter. I'm more of a one-on-one type person. So if you want to get a hold of me, use the contact form of the website or just send me an email, franz at medsailor.com. Also, I just got an email from the producer of Shooting the Breeze podcast, Jeffrey Wittig, and it appears that we're going to be doing a cross-promotion podcast in the near future, and I look forward to talking to Jeff about his sailing experiences and his podcast and audience. If you have suggestions for other topics I should cover, please drop me an email. I'm always looking for good topics to cover, and with this brief introduction, let's get on to this week's episode. I'm talking to Ron Allen. Ron and I have been going back and forth through emails since about March 3rd. I'm looking at my list of emails from you, and you originally contacted me uh, to do a review on one of my ASA courses, and over a period of time I come to learn that you have a, a seaplane base at your house, that you live in New Jersey, that you went through the hurricane you sent me some photographs that I was able to post on my website and also that you're a ham radio operator. So I want to explore a bunch of subjects with you. And, and the one I, I want to go into detail on is this, um, I think it's called AIS receiving station. Yes, you say you have an AIS receiving station at your home. Now, first of all, before we get into that, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us what you sail. I, I know you're a, you work in the judiciary, and uh, you're actually uh, between trials right now, I think.
2: Absolutely. In the real world, I'm a full-time judge here in New Jersey. I'm actually a supervising judge where we do uh, trials of orthopedic, neurologic, and uh, neuropsychiatric medicine for work-related uh, conditions, uh, sometimes known as workers' compensation. I've been doing that about 15 years and uh, love it enjoying it, uh, located here in beautiful Atlantic City.
1: Now, How far do you have
2: to drive to get there from your house? Well, that's where your uh, ASA reviews came in handy. Uh, We went from a commute of about 18 minutes door to door to one where I'm averaging about an hour and 10 each way. So uh, you've become very, very helpful passing my time on that hour and 10 minute ride uh, from where I live to uh, the courthouse down here in Atlantic County, and back and forth. Had the opportunity to listen to uh, all of the uh, uh, different classes that you've given us the opportunity to review, and uh, really enjoyed them. Well done.
1: Thanks, Ron. You are also a licensed Coast Guard licensed master, is that correct?
2: Yes, I'm uh, a master captain. We uh uh, come from a background where I was a former uh, Marine police officer here in the state of New Jersey and earned my living uh, basically doing Marine law enforcement for a number of years, uh, was able to utilize a lot of that sea time uh, as well as the uh, uh, classes and uh, test taking in order to be able to first start out with the uh, six-pack license and then eventually upgrade to the master as with the... Uh, Selling and towing endorsements on the license.
1: Okay, so a well-qualified individual to review my courses. I appreciate the time you've taken to do that, Ron.
2: Well, I'm really enjoying them, and uh, they're great. As uh, I've noted in some of my reviews, uh, your real-life experiences definitely uh, make a difference. It's not just the uh, hard and cold material, but actually how it works in the real world that uh, makes it fun to listen to.
1: I that's what I tried to do when I take a class if somebody gives me personal experiences it makes me learn the material much easier than if I'm just trying to learn facts and figures and techniques but anyway let's move on you live in New Jersey right on the coast and you sent us some photographs of when Hurricane Sandy came through tell us a bit about that experience
2: well we were uh in the middle of it we actually stayed through the hurricane it was truly amazing and uh In many ways, a life-altering experience. Having lived on the Jersey Shore, uh, right on Barnegat Bay, and having worked there as a Marine police officer, I've had years of experience working during hurricanes where we would uh, actually stay on station and work the rescue boats for situations where people would venture out uh, at times where they shouldn't. So I was used to hurricanes and felt pretty confident that the area where I live would not see much... Damage or much uh, of a tidal surge based on my experience. Unfortunately, uh, we had uh, a once in a life, hopefully, situation that developed. Uh, we have a bridge in our area that uh, connects the um, Barrier Island to the mainland, and we have Barnegat Bay uh, where I live. What happened was Sandy actually, for the first time in my life, and uh, first time as as far as many of the people who uh, live on the coast here remember, was able to actually breach that barrier island. So what happened was while we were doing fine prior to the breach, we actually were in our house when this occurred. Uh, We went to bed about 11 o'clock. The power had been out as a result of the uh, electricity being down. Uh, Everything was fine. We walked out there, looked at the backyard. The water was right where it should be no problem whatsoever by three in the morning i was uh surprised to hear the sound of a crash i ran to the window and it was the mast of my sailboat uh which had uh come down the dock off the boat lift through the bulkhead into the backyard and ultimately into the house and that was my catalina
1: 27 wow wow And and at that point in time, there's really not much you can do, but just hope the house doesn't float away, right?
2: Well, we were very lucky in terms of the water levels, Uh, although it was enough to overtop the lift, as it did everyone on on the shoreline where we live. uh, It was not enough to actually come into the living area of the house itself. But it did push the sailboat off the lift, uh, and ultimately the sailboat hit the house.
1: And you had a neighbor there that had a catamaran as well.
2: Yes, uh, actually, um, his boat was also on the lift. He had uh, a beautiful cal- catamaran, an island packet catamaran that uh, was on its lift. That was also overtopped. The boat came off the lift, and uh, when sun, when the sun came up that morning, I saw my boat in the backyard. But his boat was still floating, and I was happy to think that his boat had survived despite the fact of my boat's loss. Well, over the next few hours, uh, unfortunately, the uh, pilings from the dock ended up piercing the hull of the catamaran. It filled with water and capsized with the mast across my dock.
1: So did the water level come up to above the pilings, and then they were basically just deadheads stuck in the water?
2: Exactly, exactly. It was so high and came up so quickly as a result of that breach that the um, piling heads were actually, some were below the water, some were just uh, even with the water, and the result of the catamaran pounding on the top of the piles ultimately made the hole in one of the pontoons, which then filled with water slowly and... uh, As you can see from some of the pictures that uh, we sent, it was floating, looked fine, but ultimately ended up uh, sinking and on its side.
1: Wow. And you also sent some photographs of some boats that had uh, broken from their moorings or were now on the streets in front of your house.
2: Yes, yes. Um, The um, way that developed, basically, was uh, people who had taken their boat out in an attempt to do the proverbial right thing and get the boat up on the hard, ended up having the four foot to five foot of water in the street, float the boat off the um, uh, trailers or off their uh, cinder blocks and send them all around the neighborhood.
1: What was the cleanup like? How was it dealing with the insurance companies, the marine insurance companies? Tell us a little bit about that because we all hope we never need to go through, but what is the process that that you went through to to overcome well, to to deal with the loss?
2: Well, on the land side of it, we're still dealing with the loss uh, in terms of uh, some of the issues with the uh, insurance companies. And uh, the Sandy damage here in New Jersey uh, is still being dealt with through uh, some of the federal courts with respect to uh, how that is developing. The uh, government has... uh, been kind enough to allow people to reopen their claims if they feel they've been underpaid and many people are taking advantage of that opportunity. As far as the marine component of it, uh, something I learned as a result of this is unfortunately your boat insurance does not cover damage to your own property. So if for example you have a sailboat, your sailboat, come and do damage to your property, none of that is covered under your boat policy.
1: But but if it does damage to a neighbor's property, is that covered under the liability portion of the insurance?
2: Well, the interesting thing is, had my boat been on my neighbor's lift and damaged my property, uh, then there could have been some issues with respect to that. Uh, in terms of the damage to other people's property, had my boat hit his house or his boat hit my house, uh, things might have been different.
1: Okay, because that's what what the liability coverage is supposed to do, is to cover your damage to somebody else more than anything else, but not necessarily to yourself. But I didn't know that. So for the next batch of insurance you're going to buy, have you bought a new boat? Have you replaced your boat yet?
2: Yes, that's the um, happy news. Both myself and my neighbor have both replaced our boats. Uh, Mine I replaced with uh, a slightly larger boat because we had planned on doing more cruising So we upgraded to the uh, Catalina 30 model, which gives you the ability to have the hot and cold running water, uh, a regular stand-up shower, some of the features that you just didn't find on the uh, 27 model. My neighbor did an even bigger upgrade from the Island Packet Catamaran to a Fontaine Peugeot uh, cat
1: that he travels back and forth to Florida with now. So it actually turned out to be okay for you then.
2: Well, in the end, uh, after a lot of uh, struggle and a lot of uh, uh, emotional, uh, well, emotional concepts of uh, losing a boat that you've put so much time and effort into, uh, we're doing fine. We're still doing our projects and uh, take advantage of our uh, weekends and time off to do things like upgrading. We've upgraded with uh, wind and solar now on the boat and uh, enjoy doing those projects.
1: What are your long-term plans? Do you plan on taking off and some, some serious time and doing some cruising then?
2: Well, I'm luckily at a point in my career where we're close enough to uh, planning our retirement that uh, we probably will be doing that uh, once we are able to take off the uh, the time necessary to do the ICW or uh, the types of trips that you really want to take.
1: At six knots, everything takes a long time, as you know. And, and it's uh, much more enjoyable, too. Now, I took a boat my friends uh, Tollycraft, a big power boat he was doing the intercoastal waterway and every now and then he would say franz come join me and we got on the boat south of atlantic city probably about 50 miles i can't remember the name of the city and then went up to atlantic city and then took it on up to new york city and left it on the jersey side of new york city that picture perfect view of, of of new york city right across from the financial district i think um trying to remember the name of the city it's where uh frank, jersey Sin-
2: city. frank sinatra that be- right right yep, that, that might be jersey city or hoboken
1: yes it was right next to hoboken but it may be jersey city because i know they they sort of come together there but it was it was a beautiful view that he had from that marina and so i guess we probably went right by your house then somewhere along there
2: Yes, yes, we are uh, right in, on Barnegat Bay, right along the uh, path of the ICW. So we uh, basically are on the uh, northern part of the bay where you go through the what's called Point Pleasant Canal if you're doing the inside route, which is a man-made canal that connects the uh, Barnegat Bay with the Manisquan River and ultimately out to the Manisquan Inlet and out to the Atlantic.
1: Okay. Is there a lot of sailing activity out
2: there? Well, uh, we have uh, some very nice areas to sail. Unfortunately, our problem with Barnegat Bay, particularly now after Sandy, is a depth issue. Uh, What I hadn't noted when we uh, discussed the new boat is I was forced to go from a traditional keel to a wing keel. So even though I went with a larger size boat, I actually draw less. I draw now about 310 as opposed to a full four foot with the other Catalina.
1: Well, it sounds like you need to hop across the Atlantic and go do the French Canals then.
2: Well, you know, we enjoy listening to uh, some of the different podcasts that talk about that, and uh sounds like a wonderful adventure.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, tell me a little bit. You're a ham radio operator, and I am too. But I, I really just pretty much got my general license so that I could communicate on HF, uh, when I sailed across the Atlantic, and I did it with um, a Kenwood TS-440S transceiver, and I tuned my backstay antenna to 20 meters, which is a good long-range band. And really, once I got across the Atlantic, I haven't really kept up with it. I keep my license active, but I'm not really an active ham radio operator. But you are. Is that correct? In fact, I think you're an uh, what is it, advanced operator? Yeah, we hold the highest license that's actually available. Uh, Extra, uh, then? Is that extra, then? Yeah. Okay.
2: And uh, basically, the way it works is, as a result of some of the changes, uh, the FCC has removed the Morse code component, which is something that has held a lot of people up in terms of climbing that ladder of licenses. So if you're any good with uh, theory and electronics, you can certainly take the uh, additional tests and move up to the highest level.
1: Hmm. Okay, so so there is no code requirement for any of the licenses anymore then?
2: No, you can go all the way up to the uh, top license without having that code component any longer.
1: Okay. Are you active on ham radio on your boat? Well, yes, we do have
2: uh, an SSB radio. We have an ICOM SSB that uh, we listen to. Uh, we particularly enjoy listening to some of the cruiser's nets, uh, I believe uh, 14... Um, 1430, I believe, is the frequency that uh, we tend to listen to for that. And you'll hear people check in. It is a monitored net that is pretty well constantly listened to by different people who are control operators. And they listen for check-ins all across the country.
1: All across the country, even though it's primarily a marine net?
2: Yes, because uh, what they do is uh, they'll either base out of some of the control operators are based out of Florida, some are based out of the Midwest, depending on which direction they point their antenna array to, they'll pick up different areas, so you'll hear cruisers checking in uh, from all over basically
1: and what's the point of it to pass on information like I did when I needed to get information back to my wife or get weather information or medical information? What have you heard what 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 have you heard as a result of monitoring the nets then?
2: Well, the typical type of conversations you hear are just check-ins where people will uh, talk about where they are, what the weather's is like. Uh, it does provide the uh, family members, even if they're not hams, they can just monitor the frequency uh, with uh, having that comfort level of knowing that even if they're out at sea beyond uh, the uh, cell phone range or beyond VHF range, uh, that the person is doing well where they are and uh, that um, they're checking in to show that they're uh,
1: alive and well. What are the frequencies that you're typically monitoring? What bands are you are these nets on? If you know off the top of your head.
2: Well, again, the um, fourteen either two hundred or fourteen three hundred is the the biggest one. I don't have the list of uh, different uh, uh, cruising uh, nets available in front of me here, but if you, uh, of course, Google it, you'll find that uh, there are many different ones, some specific to uh, the islands, some more specific to uh, the Florida area. Uh, It's very interesting. It's fun just to listen to where people are and, and how they're doing, what the weather's like. Nothing like sitting here in beautiful New Jersey on a winter day hearing people talk about the beautiful weather in South Florida.
1: All right. You brought something up on one of your emails to me about being an AIS receiving station. Tell us about what that is and what is AIS because it's something that I was not familiar with at all. But, again, I haven't been keeping up with ham radio. Sure. Well,
2: this actually isn't so much ham radio based. It's more electronics based. AIS is Automatic Identification System. It's the same system that you'll see on uh, large ships, for example, they are required to carry it. There's a class A type and a class B type. The class B is something that you'll see with uh, smaller recreational vessels, that type of thing. Uh, What this does is uh, it's a wonderful way of providing both your friends, family, and other boats with your whereabouts. Uh, It operates in the VHF uh, frequency range, just slightly higher than the normal marine band radio, Uh, uses a very similar antenna, and uh, will produce a signal that is coded to your particular vessel. That includes your MMSI, which is your Marine Identification Number, and uh, that will key back to details. So, for example, uh, when I transmit my AIS signal from my boat, it automatically will bring up uh, who I am, Uh, the type of boat that I am, the appearance of the boat, what type of radios we have, all of the information that is done through an MMSI uh, signal. Now, what we are is, this is something that I found through the Internet, just randomly. The site that I found it at is called marinetraffic.com. And that's something that you can receive basically from uh, any computer, and what it is is it is a site that works with the University of the Aegean and on that site you will see a map of the entire world showing the different AIS signals so in my case if you were to go to New Jersey and bring that up on the map you'll see currently in real time what vessels are passing uh... the area that you've focused in on uh, And how that is done is through stations like myself that volunteer to do this.
1: So if a a boat's out beyond VHF, beyond the line of sight, and they send it, does it go up to a satellite and then relay down? Is that what happens? Well, basically the way this system works
2: is from boat to boat, you would receive the other boat's signal. Uh, For other boats, Uh, shore based stations such as my own I have an antenna that's located on my house I have uh, a receiver which has been supplied free of charge to me by the University which is connected to that antenna that then sinks into my uh, home computer system and transmits from that through my home computer system into the Internet to the site there are hundreds of these stations located in different areas so as the boat will pass sending out that AIS signal one of us will pick it up and that's how you end up seeing it on the map on the uh, computer
1: I see I see okay so it's volunteers that are uploading the information then
2: exactly Uh, what happens is that information is uploaded the site is wonderful and uh, some of the things it does is it allows you to develop fleets so for example you could put your own boat in the fleet and uh, your family members can go to that site if you're transiting a location that has one of the volunteer uh, receiver people monitoring it and it'll come up on the map and you can even have pictures of your boat for example my boat I've actually uploaded photos where you can see the picture, you can see uh, the uh, location of the boat, you can actually track it for the boat's course to see where it is traveling. It also includes things such as your last port, when you entered that port, when you left that port. So for example, my neighbor with the Fontaine Peugeot who travels to Florida, I'm able to actually watch his travel from New Jersey to Florida in real time on this map.
1: Okay, so is this the system that a lot of the flotillas and yacht races or uh, y- the yacht races are using? Because I know I've been on a few races where they've required that we have uh, some sort of a box that's sending out our signal every now and then. Is that what it is, or is this a, or is that more of a specialized system for the race itself?
2: Well, I'm not a, a yacht racer, so I'm not really sure what they use. But if it is a, a transceiver that is ultimately sending out. Uh, electronic signals about location and who you are and where you are and may very well be an AIS uh, transmitter.
1: Tell us a little bit about the, the transceiver on the boat. How big is it? How much does it cost? How much is involved in installing it?
2: Well, it's something that anyone who is able to install a VHF uh, marine radio can do. Uh, they recommend utilizing two separate antennas, one for the AIS component and one for of course the VHF uh, voice component. Uh, Usually there are two outputs on the uh, AIS transmitter uh, and one is for the antenna for voice and one would be for the antenna for the uh, AIS uh, transmissions. Uh, They range in price depending on how fancy you want to get from a simple receiver that you might have that would show you where other boats are and that is again connectable to your uh, chart plotter through the uh, output of the unit itself and going into the input of your chart plotter similar to the way a GPS might work uh, all the way to other units that are standalone units which actually not only receive other boats but transmit that signal to other boats and those are substantially more expensive, and uh, they could either be standalone or they could be incorporated into your system. Prices prices range from, uh, you can buy an ICOM, for example, that has that receive-only capability in about the $300 range to over a few thousand dollars for the uh, transmit-receive standalones.
1: Are you seeing this unit a lot in recreational boats, or is it still pretty much in the uh, commercial boat
2: area right now? No, actually, if you look at the map at the uh, marine traffic site, you'll see many, many recreational boats that are utilizing the system, both for the comfort of letting the large boats know where they are, uh, as well as letting family members know, so that uh, if something was to happen during that track of uh travel from point a to point b they will know that something's wrong or where you are during the course of that track
1: so i imagine in places like the mediterranean where you're really never too far away from land that's pretty accurate you can pick up pretty much if you have one of these units your your location is going to be picked up but if you're out or in the middle of the pacific or the middle of the atlantic there may be a period of time when there's no tracking of you going on because it is sounds to be like it goes from ship to ship and then maybe to the Internet at that point in time.
2: Well, the main concern and the reason they're doing this is more for safety, uh, inter-ship type safety. It's, it's very similar to aircraft, which, as you mentioned, is another area of my uh, uh, enjoyment for hobby purposes. Uh, same concept where you'll have... Uh, uh, transmitter or transponder on an aircraft that will send out a signal so that uh, the other aircraft as well as uh, the uh, controllers on the ground will know exactly where you are in terms of who you are, your height, your ground speed, your, your uh, direction of travel, those types of things. It's just taken that concept that we've had in aviation for so many years and brought it into the marine world.
1: All right, so that moves on to the next subject I did want to cover with you. When you first emailed me, I, I did a Google search on, on your name in New Jersey, and the one I found had a seaplane base, and I just wrote you back. I said, are you the guy with the seaplane base? And you said, yes, I am. Tell me a little bit about your seaplane base. My experience has been the best sailors I've ever come across have always been pilots, or or they're also pilots, so it seems to go, you know, it's good sailors or good pilots or vice versa. And you're also a pilot, it sounds like. So tell me about your, the type of plane you fly, your seaplane base, and so forth.
2: Well, uh, I'm one of those individuals who had just wonderful parents who were able to uh, support me in my, my endeavors as a young kid. Uh, I actually flew airplanes before I was able to drive a car here in New Jersey. Uh, During the time when we uh, went through that process, you needed to be 17 years old to get a license here in New Jersey to drive a car. At the time, you could fly a plane with a full pilot's license at the age of 16. So I started flight training uh, when I was in high school and ultimately financed it by doing everything from working in garden centers to uh, warehouses, mowing lawns, all of the types of jobs that kids will have in order to pay for my flying lessons, and ultimately uh, received my pilot's license before I was able to drive a car. My parents would drive me to the airport here in New Jersey so I could fly a plane to Boston. I was too young to drive.
1: <laughs> so what type of plane, do you do you own a plane now, or do you ty- typically lease a plane, or are you belong to a group that owns a plane and shares it?
2: Well, we've done uh, a little of each of those during my flying career. I actually own a plane that uh, is in storage right now. It's actually an experimental aircraft that uh, myself and my neighbor built. Uh, It's called a Challenger 2. It's a two-place aircraft that the wings are able to be detached, and it's storable in a garage. Uh, Very, very interesting aircraft in that uh, it has incredible capabilities it can fly as slow as 25 miles an hour Uh, cruise speed is in the uh, 80 mile an hour range Uh, can be used as a sailplane where the plane can be brought up to altitude the engine switched off and the wings are long enough and the plane is light enough to be able to stay aloft like a glider basically using thermals
1: oh it sounds like a fun plane
2: Oh, it's it's wonderful and uh, very inexpensive to operate. Uh, fabric covered. Uh, that's why we keep it uh, inside rather than expose it to the uh, outside. The seaplane base uh, is a private, restricted seaplane base that uh, I have for myself. And what that's about is New Jersey is one of those states that um, makes it very difficult for seaplane operations to take place. In some states. You could basically land a seaplane wherever there's a body of water. As long as there is enough room and uh, no prohibition against it, you can land. New Jersey requires any seaplane that wants to land to land at an official airport. So, in other words, for me who had wanted to be able to put floats on the plane and ultimately land it in front of my house and park it uh, at the home. I would not have been able to do this if not for setting up an actual seaplane base which I set up as a restricted use one for my own use as well as uh, other individuals who I might authorize.
1: Oh, okay. Was that a lot of bureaucracy to go through?
2: Well, it was really not bad because what had happened was I remember as a child uh, seeing seaplanes taking off and landing. Uh, going between the New Jersey Shore and Wall Street. They used to have a shuttle service where they would pick up the uh, Wall Street people, take them to work up in New York, let them spend the day, and then bring them back to the Jersey Shore on the seaplanes. And I noticed the planes had not been taking off for quite a while, which gave me the idea that it's possible that that application or that license was no longer being utilized which allowed me to then uh, find that it became available. Much of the information that I would have needed to go through in terms of the bureaucracy had already been done by the former operator, and I was able to uh, utilize that information for my own application.
1: So I think we've covered most of the things I wanted to talk to you about, Ron, but I want to ask you a quick question. I love stories, and I don't think you're prepared for this, so if you can't do it, don't worry, I can edit it out but tell me about the best or most memorable sailing experience you've had in your lifetime of sailing. Or it doesn't have to be about sailing. It could be when you were working as a law enforcement officer on on the water. Well, I think probably most of the
2: most memorable experiences are the rescues. Uh, At the time that I was doing this type of work, This is a long time ago prior to Boat US, prior to Tow, or any of the companies that uh, we see as commonplace now. Uh, There was no such thing as marine towing. If your boat broke down, you uh, would end up being at the mercy of either the weather, the waves, or just the good good spirits of your fellow boaters. And uh, what would happen is people would end up Either a ground, or they would end up uh, having engine problems, having no way to get home. And some of the work that we did at the time was we operated not only patrol vessels, but we al- also operated towing vessels. And uh, many of the experiences that I I have as most memorable are where we've pulled people out of uh, dangerous situations that uh, they've either underestimated their skills or overestimated their capability of their boat and found themselves in real potential danger. And being able to stop that uh, negative outcome and get them home safe was one of the most rewarding parts of the job. So they kind of all mold together into the uh, generic rescues that we used to do almost on a daily basis here in New Jersey.
1: Sounds interesting, sounds exciting. I, do you sort of miss that now that, you're, now that you're a judge? Do you miss those times when you're out on the water all day long?
2: Well, in many ways, it is, for a boater, probably one of the best jobs that you could possibly have. Uh, I recognized how lucky I was to be given the opportunity to have uh, all the fuel we could burn, eight hours paid to be on the water and to help people. So what more could one ask? It was probably one of the best jobs of my career.
1: Ron, it's been great talking to you. I want to get back with you again in the future and catch up on what you're doing when you get out there and and start cruising. Thanks for coming on. Truly
2: a pleasure, and thank you for your great work on the uh, ASA courses. And uh, thanks again. I look forward to chatting with you again.
1: Okay. Thanks, Ron. Take care. Joe you have something to tell me?
0: No, I don't think so.
1: I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joel.
0: His exact words. That's unbelievable.
1: You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you? Every once in a while, you just gotta say, what the heck? And take some chances.
0: You are so right. You made me very proud. I was just thinking where we might be ten years from now, you know? <laughs>
1: Introduction and exit quotes for this podcast were from the movie Risky Business, released in 1983, and written by Paul Brickman. The dialogue, which was used in order, were played by Curtis Armstrong, who in the movie played the character Miles Dalby, Nicholas Pryor, who in the movie played Joel's father, Mr. Goodson, and Tom Cruise, who was the main character, who played the character of Joel Goodson one of my favorite movies of all time.